0: Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date is uh, in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. But what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, NordVPN, of course, you see it's Nord nordic yeah no, no yeah it's i get it moving on with one click nordvpn can change my device's virtual location so i can access all the content i need when i'm abroad i can now watch poor things whether in london or paris why even wait until you're on holiday you can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries unlocking all this content for less than a price of a pano raisin a month pano raisin pano Raisin. to take our huge discount huge. off your nordvpn plan go to nordvpn.com take our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan now back to the show Hello and welcome to a very special extra, Kermit O'Mea's Take. With the Oscars happening this Sunday, March 10th at the Dolby Theatre in Los Angeles, we thought we would make sure you are fully in the know about the films vying for the top prize this year. We are, of course, talking about the Best Picture category, which this year includes... American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and Zone of Interest. We have, of course, covered... All of these films. We've interviewed many of the directors and actors involved and Mark has reviewed all of them because that's why he's here. That's my job. So over the next 60 minutes, we're going to be revisiting those interviews and reviews. But before we dive in, Mark, your thoughts on this year's list, which you've just read out, are are they all deserving to be there? It's a good list. I mean, you get everything from blockbusters to sort of smaller, more interesting art house movies. Very, very hard to call, but it's going to be Oppenheimer. So, yes, I, I, I can see that. But if if I was just to pick one of them... Oppenheimer. For example, if I just put my finger on one, like Anatomy of a Fall, you go, yes, yeah. that could win. Zone so, yeah. of Interest, yes, that could win. That has... I don't think Poor Things should win, but there you go. Yeah, but then you're wrong, because Poor Things is wonderful. Poor Things actually would be my choice. Maestro shouldn't win. Killers of the Fly Moon shouldn't win. Holdovers, good. Barbie, good. Anatomy of Fall, good. American Fiction, good. Zone of Interest, good. Op, but it'll be Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. There you go, That's yes. <laughs> it's Oppenheimer. Uh, so let's start with our first group of films, and where better to begin than the cinema event of last year, that's Barbenheimer. Uh, you'll first hear an exclusive bit of an unreleased interview with the star of Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy, where he talks about his feelings towards award ceremonies in general and working with the great Gary Oldman, followed by Mark's thoughts on the film. And then we're looking at Barbie, and we'll hear from its director, Greta Gerwig, about making the Barbie film her own way, or no way at all. And following that, we'll be revisiting Mark's thoughts on Killers on the Flower Moon with its... Killers strife. off the Flower Moon. And then... Killers on the Flower Moon would be a very different space movie. The flowery Killers on, on the, moon, the Moon with its striking visuals, but rather testing running time. The interview I did with Poor Things, Emma Stone and Rami Yusuf, where we talked about Emma's character, Bella Baxter, acting as a mirror for a man's desire. Mm. Mark's review of The Holdovers, which had him and his fellow critics asking why they don't make those types of film anymore. Enjoy. Can I ask you what your feelings are about awards season? Because obviously we're right in the middle of it now and uh, you you have more of it ahead of you. You've always seemed like somebody who's very disconnected from all that kind of uh, razzmatazz. So how are you dealing with this?
1: I think the only way to deal with it is to go into it with an open heart and, you know, uh, and uh, just be thankful and be humble to that people are honoring the film and the work in such a way. So that's what I'm doing. And I, um, and it's wonderful to meet all these other, that's the high, the kind of, High point for me or the bonus is meeting all these other filmmakers and all these other actors, because I think it's been a very strong year for film and getting to chat to them about their mm. work. I, I've enjoyed that. And I have to say I'm enjoying it much more than I expected to.
0: Gary Oldman was on the show a while back. He came in to promote Slow Horses and various other things. And I think it was the first time that Oppenheimer would been mentioned on this podcast, because yeah. he said he'd gone to America for a day. Yeah. Um, And when I get to his sequence, in the he really just turned up for the day. I mean, it's such a fantastic scene. And you've worked with Gary Oldman before, of course. Can I just ask you about that, though? Um, Is is that right that he was just there for like 24 hours and then he came back?
1: Yes, we only had Gary for a day on the film. You know, he played Truman. And I remember we had a location for the Oval Office and then we lost that location for whatever reason. So they had to frantically get a oval office set out of storage somewhere from one of those american tv shows (laughs) and put it all together build the whole thing get it up get it painted get it lit in time for gary's arrival on set and you know he had to go through all those hours of prosthetics and so anyway i remember walking onto that set and you could still smell the paint and um we did the scene and gary oldman just absolutely nailed it uh, as Truman, like the voice, the mannerisms. Uh, and it's a very crucial scene in Oppenheimer's story. And, you know, I'd worked with Gary briefly before in one of the Batman movies, but this was a proper full day, you know, going toe to toe with Gary Oldman, one of my heroes. So it was one of, that was one of the great days. But that was the nature of the film. You know, you, you, you'd go, it became almost, just normal that you'd have one day, you'd be doing a scene with Gary Oldman, next day you'd be doing a scene with Ken Branagh, next day you'd be doing a scene with Downey, next day you'd be doing a scene with Matt Damon. It was kind of, it became, it never became normal, but it certainly became routine, the idea that you'd be doing (laughs) huge, huge sequences with huge movie stars every day. But that's, again, the the kind of prestige that Chris has, these these, these actors, will turn up for him
0: you know did you do barbenheimer at any point did you see the two movies back to back as most of the rest of the world appears to have done
1: well, i mean i i i went to see barbie for sure um but i no i did not do the the double bill thing no i i tried to watch my films as as few times as possible <laughs> I, I, I went to see barb or barbie and, and i thoroughly enjoyed it
0: i've um, got a couple of list, listeners questions if we have a moment here so uh, I've done the research, Kilian, I don't know if this is true, but Azra has sent in this question. Before delving into your role as Oppenheimer, Chris Nolan recommended watching Amadeus for inspiration. Were there any other films that found their way into your preparation process? So is that true?
1: That is true. Amadeus, I mean it's such a great movie, but um also the you know, the relationship between Salieri and Mozart kind of I suppose there's a you could you could say that there is something in the relationship between Straws and Oppenheimer in our movie, and it was just a joy to watch that film. Uh, watch Lawrence of Arabia as well, in terms of um, an epic movie on an epic scale that's not quite biopic, but is biopic. Um those were two ones that that, that we watched.
0: In his face. Where the story plays out, you see ambition, you see conflict, you see devotion, you see deception, you see deceit, you see disappointment. All of those things happen on Killian Murphy's face. And I think he his role is brilliant. My favorite scenes in the film are actually between him and Damon because they're chalk and cheese characters. And the you know, it's it, in that tension between what the military wants and what the scientific community want, there you know there is agreement, but there is also disagreement. You know what you get. You know one searching, one demanding, one exploring, one exploiting, and not necessarily always the way you'd think. Obviously, also the film looks great. Hoy van Hoytema has shot it um, in a way which is using the IMAX format t- to do to do close to do. Intimate to do not just because it's actually for a film that's about the invention of the atomic bomb. The spectacle is is kind of limited. There's a lot of people talking in rooms. There's an awful lot of that, and then there's this thing about um, going from black and white to color, which is sort of subjective, objective, sort of one perspective. You know, one character with another character. Sometimes it seems like it's 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 it can be style for the sake of style. I'm not entirely sure about how that works, but you kind of it, it, you know it looks good and the sound design is is fantastic there is this sort of repetitive thing about the, the the feet stamping on the floor as applause which then matches into the sound of a rumble and the sound of the earth kind of being almost knocked off its axis by 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 what's happening i think it is a really really good film i don't know that it emotionally impacted on me as much as i wanted it to and i have often found that with no i mean like interstellar is very very emotional and i think i think oppenheimer is really good and really impressive it is a three-hour film which is it's quite a hard ask for an audience as i said there is a lot of people talking in rooms, it is not a lot of action and explosion. And when you when things happen, it's fleeting and quite often it's represented by sound rather than visuals. It is a character study, political history, really, and it's the weight of it rests on Killian Murphy's face. Does the story start with Margot Robbie approaching you? Is that the beginning of your involvement?
2: Yes. She, she approached me uh, as a writer, and uh, then I brought on Noah Baumbach, who's my partner in, in, in life and art. And so initially it was r- a writing project. And What did she say? She said, I, my company, um, and Warner Brothers, we have the rights to Barbie. They'd like to make it into a movie. Do you want to write it? <laughs> and I guess they said yes. It's actually hard to remember now because I... I had a a newborn baby when that started and I have a newborn baby again now and it's very hard to construct your mindset uh, in the like the 2 months after having a baby you're sort of like I don't I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> exactly but something in me was thought it might be interesting. And so there wasn't
0: a story she didn't come to you with a story. No, she no. said, "Let's begin at the beginning. It's Barbie."
2: She said, "It's Barbie. What do you want to do?" And I said, yeah, "Give me about a year and I'll think of something." <laughs>
0: And so that seems like it's quite a jump from from Little Women. And yeah. I, one of the things that's come up a lot in all the movies that we're talking about is lockdown and COVID and the effect yeah. of that on film production, True. but also in story writing. Because yeah. if I've got this right, you and Noah wrote this during lockdown.
2: We did, yeah. yeah. Do
0: you think that's obvious when we go and see the movie?
2: I don't think it's obvious in any sort of like...
0: Is it Wait. more unhinged, I guess, is what I'm thinking.
2: Yes, well it definitely is more <laughs> unhinged, but I don't think it's um I think as soon as you say it, you when you see the movie, you're like, Oh, I could see why that was the case. I mean, I think a lot of it is just what I was sort of saying at the top was we did we we so wanted we missed going to the movie theater. We love going to the movie theater. And I think it was part of it was fueled by this sense of well, if we ever get back there, let's just do the Craziest, most outrageous thing we can think of, and it and I think it freed us up too because, you know, nothing was getting made for a moment, nothing was being released, and um, everybody's sort of response of like, well, they'll never let you make this, and I was like, well, they're already not making movies, why don't they not make this one too, and that that was kind of allowed us to be anarchic and wild.
0: And at what stage did you think I want to direct this? Uh, you know, fine, I can write it, but really this is my film.
2: After the script was written. I mean, for me, it's once we had the script, that was when I wanted to write, uh, direct it because for me that's the – I think the idea of directing a Barbie movie wasn't that interesting to me. It was directing this Barbie movie. And it, it made it very simple in a way because if they didn't want to do it, then I, I didn't need to make a Barbie movie. So I felt less – pressure maybe than uh, you might if you really wanted to just do any barbie movie but when we when it came down to changing stuff or making things different it was really like well i don't need to do this if you don't want to do it this way i don't i don't have any interest in it and so that was kind of it i think it emboldened everybody
0: Now, there obviously, the Barbie movie had been in development for ages. There was a previous incarnation that Anne Hathaway was down to do, and then that didn't happen because it went from Sony to Warner's. And then Margot, I think Margot Robbie is perfect for this role. Obviously, she's a producer, as you say, said there. She's so perfect that there's even a gag in the narration about how perfect she is for the role, that the, that the film gets away with because it's such a perfect role. And I think that the... The smartness of it is that it manages to have its cake and eat it. It manages to celebrate and satirize and deconstruct the Barbie, you know, mythology. And at the end of it, you come out actually feeling warm towards it. And I say that as somebody who is a huge fan of the Todd Haynes film, which is absolutely about the problems of the way in which, you know, the Barbieization of the real world has lethal consequences. I think. A lot of people have talked about how funny Ryan Gosling is, and Ryan Gosling is really funny. I and mean, there's a sequence where, and when you go and see it, there's sequence where he is, it's a very brief scene where he is talking to a uh, a doctor, and yeah. he's assuming that he can also become a doctor because he's a he's man. Is very, very funny. Yeah, because he's discovered the patriarchy. And the sequence in which men then decide that they what, I, I sit down and I'll play my guitar at you. If the use of the word at is really great. But I think what's, it? it's easy to understate how good Margot Margot Robbie is. Yes, Ryan Gosling is great, and I've seen a couple of reviews said, you know, Ryan Gosling steals it. No, he's very good. But the film works because Margot Robbie is absolutely on it in that role, and having the smarts to get on Greta Gerwig, and obviously, as you said, the script with Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, I thought was meta in exactly the way that that you want that kind of script to to, to be meta. I thought it was funny, I I I enjoyed the songs, I mean, you know, I've enjoyed the songs very much. I thought the design was absolutely terrific. I mean, you come out, you kind of your retinas are <laughs> everything's everything's gone pink. There are, you know, there there are loads of cinematic gags. There are loads of things, you know, jokes about the Godfather and jokes about um. And in the, that clip was a Matrix joke. There's a, yeah, there's a Matrix joke. Exactly. There's the there's, there's the red pill stuff. There's the thing about you know the the Justice League director's cut. But the but the thing is, when you ask who's it for it's not one of those movies that goes oh well you know I mean it's one thing a movie critic going well I you know I really like it because she's got all these really smart references throughout the Godfather and all that sort of stuff you know, okay fine but I can imagine it playing to exactly the same people that like Barbie Swan Lake because it's you know because it's fun and it's it's just on the right side of of uh, you know uh, some of the humor it just sides right sides right up to the edge of what you can get away with and still be a kind of mainstream movie I Hey. I I was really pleasantly impressed and surprised. I laughed and I and then and you and I both came out I think with a spring in us with our arches lifted. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Mubi. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a Mubi account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly Simon. This month Mubi are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful. And Tokyo Gar, which is the film by a uh, German director, Wim Wenders, who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Vada, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Mayo. That's m-u-b-i dot com slash for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, hello there, Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the new film by uh, Martin Scorsese. So it is true, and I think that this has to be said. I think as a theatrical experience, it is a testing running time. I think that it felt that it was being, that it had been put together in the knowledge that it could be as long as it wanted and i think there is a question at some point to be had about whether or not there is a different different thing between a streaming running time and a theatrical running time because i did feel that there were long goes i mean it takes its time and it's not always time well spent it's not always it doesn't always look like it's been absolutely ruthlessly stripped back it is it is it is taking its time to tell its story in a way that we were we would associate or i would associate more with home viewing that said it has real big screen beauty it's beautifully shot by rodrigo Pieto. it you 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 see it on the big screen and you think the visuals you know demand to be seen on the big screen it's also clearly heartfelt i mean apparently the Osage nation had quite a lot of input into the script and the film which changed it quite a lot and which lends an authenticity to the story and the way the story is sold because the story is quite horrifying in a sort of kind of understated way I mean it is a a fairly brutal depiction of the way in which these peoples have been exploited and you know It's it's done in it's done in a kind of forensically methodical manner. Performances are great. Leonardo DiCaprio's face, he does this grimace. It's like I can't do it, but like his mouth is turned down at either side. So he looks like he's constantly grimacing through the whole movie, and it's almost as if he has reconfigured his face to look like somebody who who you know life has been hard to and. Is kind of grimacing in the face of the world. Robert De Niro really enjoys the role of King, the, you know, the kind of the, the, the emperor, the King. And he really relishes that. But Lily Gladstone absolutely steals the show. And you saw just a little bit of that, despite the fact that the that her role necessarily involves her character becoming more and more passive as she becomes ill and as she's kind of starts to be sidelined by the narrative still she's like this glowing thing right at the heart of the drama and it's her who drags you into it and her who keeps you invested emotionally even when you you, you know got on the one hand these two kind of titans uh, of, of modern cinema there is a score which i think you'll like very much by robbie robertson is bluesy and stripped down occasionally there's this like boom 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 Boom, boom, bass thing that just that will goes on for like minutes at a time just like a kind of plod it's almost like a heartbeat you're a robbie robertson fan anyway mm-hmm. aren't you? yeah i think you'll like that very much and the whole like i said the whole thing has a real heartfelt feel to it i would say however i do think that there is a proper debate to be had about when you're when you're being financed by streaming services and when running time isn't an issue whether there is such a thing as a, as a as a as a as an ideal theatrical running time or an ideal home screen. I did feel watching this in a cinema, th- this doesn't actually need to be this long. Could and it I have n- been, you know, four one hours? Yes, I think it probably could have probably could have been. You know, we are just in an interesting point at the moment in which there is a tug of war between theatrical and streaming, and whether or not, you know, like I said, the, everything about the visuals is big screen but something about the nature of the storytelling lends itself more obviously to the small screen. And I'm not saying that means don't go and see it in the cinema. What I'm saying is when you see it in the cinema, you are more conscious of the fact that it is absolutely taking its time telling this story. And you know, look, it's not that movies, movies don't, movies should be the length that they need to be. And if I'm honest, I don't know that this needed to be as long as it was. But there are many, many great things about it. That shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't be a defining factor. We have to talk about Bella Baxter. So just, ex- how do you begin to explain this role to people who haven't seen this film and how and how you built this character?
3: I don't really, um, because we try to keep it, I mean, it's very important to Yorgos that people know as little as possible, okay. obviously. And, you know, previews and things, you can kind of get the gist that... The really simple gist of (laughs) it.
0: Okay. Um, So, what can you tell us about Bella
3: Baxter? Uh, Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, I can basically, it's. She's she's a woman who is building herself from scratch. What does that mean? Both creator and creation, ultimately. Um, It means that she has never had these life experiences and she is uh, without shame, without self judgment. And she's sort of approaching everything in life, whatever it may be, travel, food, sex, dance, uh, politics, with a sort of brand new curiosity. And she's a creature unlike anything else.
0: Would it be fair to say she's a full grown baby (laughs) at the beginning?
3: I guess that would be fair. Yes, it would be fair. But she's also developing in a way that no baby would ever develop. I mean, she's, she's what do you say? She, she's gaining 25 words a day. Her hair is growing rapidly. She She's kind of more of a, of a creature than a literal uh, baby in my mind. I see her as like a metaphorical sort of, you know, people have compared it to Frankenstein. Like a kind of, you know, the way she walks, the way she talks, um, I guess does feel... Like a toddler in the beginning, but then it sort of evolves into a place where she's just kind of uh, her own. Also, because Willem
0: Dafoe looks Frankensteinian—I don't know if that's (laughs) even a word—and he's the guy who's put you together, so that'll be why they end up. And bearing in mind Emma, that you can't tell us anything about the film uh, or what happens later on. So you're a fully grown baby to start with, but you gain sentience as we go through the film. Yeah, Um, and it's almost as though as you as you are gaining. Sentience, the men in your life go crazy.
3: Yeah. They, 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 in different they, ways.
0: Yes, they can't they can't stand the fact that you're not the person that they that they thought you were.
3: Well, I think that Rami, you had such a good answer to this yesterday about the mirror and the mirror on men, like what the there, you know, that she is herself in every circumstance. She's forthright, she's honest, she says exactly what she wants and needs, she sees no reason not to. And the reactions of the different men in her life to her agency, her growing sense of agency, is very interesting and kind of like a, I don't know, a study on, what did you say? Like, how they react is...
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the Bella character and the film—it's a very mirror, like where you know what you get out of it is kind of where you're at. You know, yeah. she she's she's just curious and she's growing, and then you know these men are kind of seeing where they're at with their own desire for control and
0: and how they are and their with
3: egos and yeah yeah need to possess.
0: At the heart of it, there is an emotional story about somebody when you, I mean, it was so fascinating when you asked her, like she said, she's like a fully functioning grown-up baby. And she said, well, yes, but obviously that's how the, when we first meet Bella Baxter, that is what she does. But then you sort of see her grow before you. And as she grows and as she becomes more agile, both mentally and physically, the men become more and more infantilized. I mean, Mark Ruffalo, who when you first meet him, you know, he's all rakish and everything. (laughs) But halfway through the movie, he's turned into a gibbering schoolboy. And it's sort of like their paths, you know, cross like that. and." There's this recurrent theme that men in her life keep forgiving her for that. I forgive you for the things. You, I don't want forgiveness. What What are you forgiving me for? I just, I, you know, I, so I thought it was, I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. I've now seen it three times. Wow. And um, the first time I saw it, I was a bit like, what on earth is, is going on? I did, you know, it was like, really? Wow. And then the second time, I think I thought, you know, okay, now, you know, I'm getting more of the sort of the serious undertone and all the rest of it. The most recent time I watched it, I just thought it was hilariously funny. And it was very uh, interesting that he says in that interview, you know, I, I minute, minute I read it, I knew it was a comedy. Because all of Lanthimos' stuff, you know, even Killing of a Sacred Deer, the, these are darkly comedic in um, you know I, I, in their form. They have to hit you on an emotional level. They have to elicit a response that you can't resist. I mean, I thought it was terrific. Simon? Uh, I felt I admired it. I mean, I admired it, and okay. I, it, it's not Lanthimos' films aren't, aren't for me, basically. But no, no it was. Sure. But I, I, I agree with you. Know it was uncomfortable. It was awkward. It's twisted. <laughs> it's debauched. And if the, and if Lanthimos is your thing, then you're going to absolutely love it. But I, it's a bit like listening to some hardcore jazz. I can appreciate, <laughs> I, I appreciate it and yeah. and admire the musicianship, but it's just it's not what I would spend my time. Doing. Lanthimos said this thing to me. I said what makes you laugh? And he said, the awkwardness of human interaction, which is Danger. precisely chimes with what you just precisely. said. Precisely, And inevitably lots of award chat. So that's oh, yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. uh, oh, heading yes. their way.
5: Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker. And this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, shmestians, you know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. Isn't that why we're really here? So If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. And it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get ten percent off their first month at BetterHelp.com/curmode. That's BetterHelp hel slash curmode Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help. I texted my
0: boss. And on Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want anything full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help as Sex and My Boss Live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexofmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexofmyboss.com slash cinema. The holdovers, which is the new drama from Alexander Payne, uh, who was the guy behind Election, about Schmidt, Nebraska, and you know perhaps most celebratedly, Sideways. So this reteams Alexander Payne with Sideways star Paul Giamatti, who won a Golden Globe recently. It's written by David Hemmingson, who apparently drew on his own experiences of being at boarding school and from time he spent with uh, an uncle and learning life lessons. So. The film is set, it's weird because it's released now, but it's set at Christmas, and it's kind of odd that they didn't actually release it at Christmas, it's a bit strange. So it's set around Christmas 1970. It has the look and texture of a film that was made in the period in which it is set. Paul Giamatti uh, is uh, Paul Hunnam, who is classics professor uh, at this uh, this university, and... um, it's an, not the university. Uh, this elite New England boarding school. Why did I say university? I literally just said boarding school. Barton Academy. He is disconsolate. He is misanthropic. He's lonely. He views the students with a degree of contempt. Although he's, you know, he he's a great educator, but you get the sense that. We get the sense that something has happened in his life and he he should have been somewhere. He should have been in more glorious surroundings, but he isn't. And we see that he drowns his sorrows in, in, in alcohol. After failing to give one posh student an appropriately high grade to get him into the university that he wanted to go to, the headmaster says, you, you know, he's a his, his father's got money. He said, yeah, but he didn't get the grade. He said, yeah. So he is then given the job of looking after the holdovers. These are students who who stay behind at school at Christmas because they haven't got somewhere to go to for various reasons. One such is Angus. He's played by a Dominic Sessa, Rising Star now, Dominic Sessa, who was expecting to go home, but who learns at the last moment that that isn't going to happen, that his mum and her new partner one time together, so he's not going back. So, embittered, angry professor, embittered, angry young student and stoical head cook Mary Lambert, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who won the uh, uh, Golden Globe for supporting uh, actress, and rightly so. She is grieving the loss of her son in the Vietnam War. At first, the group bicker and fight not least after a party, which they have to leave early after things don't quite go as planned. Here's a clip.
6: This is why I hate parties. That was a disaster, total disaster. Speak for yourself. I was having fun.
0: Let's take Mary home, make sure
1: she's
6: okay, and we'll come back. Out of the question. Come on, would you give me a break? God, I was hitting it off with Elise. Oh, God, Denise, are you kidding me? This poor woman is bereft, and all you can think about is some silly girl. I don't need you feeling sorry for me. See? I'm just saying, this was the first good thing that came with being in this prison with you. Need I remind you that it is not my fault that you are stuck here? Do you think I want to be babysitting you? Oh, no, no, I was praying to the God I don't even believe in that your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a submarine or a flying saucer my father's to take you off. dead
0: see, I love that scene. I, I love the fact with that line about, you know, it ends up praying to the God I don't believe in that your father would turn up in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's dead. Or a dead. submarine, yes. And it's, in a way, it's, so what happens is obviously you you know because of the the because of the, everything you're learning about the drama, you know that what's going to happen is during the course of the drama, they're going to find things out about each other. They're going to discover through this kind of crotchety interaction of these people thrown together, each dealing with their own personal feelings that they are going to find some way of you know, getting under each other's skin. So the format may be unsurprising, but there is nothing unsurprising about just how good and just how enjoyable this is. I know this sounds like a strange thing to say, but it feels like the kind of bittersweet, character dialogue-driven piece that they just don't make anymore. If you if you walked into a cinema knowing nothing about this and knowing nothing about Paul Giamatti or anyone, and you just started watching it, you would think you were watching a film from 1970. I mean, that's—it's not just to do with the look and texture of the film; it's everything about it. Is like the kind of film they just don't make anymore. Do you remember when David Putnam said he was going to stop making movies directing because he um, he thought it was no longer possible to make the kind of mid-range intelligent drama that wasn't you know it wasn't a big action blockbuster and it wasn't the tiny and then he said that actually um, George Clooney was making the kind of films that he that he thought you couldn't make anymore. The central trio they're great. The performances are really really good, really engaging and charming. At times, it's hilarious. At times, it's heartbreaking. It is never less than utterly engaging. Um, At the end of it, and I saw it in a a room with just a, a, a few people, I promise this is what happened. The film finished and the lights went up and we almost, in chorus, all turned to each other and went... Why don't they make films like that anymore? Wow. Okay. And it's so. And I know. And what I don't want that to to make it sound like is because I don't believe in the thing about films aren't as good as they were because I actually think cinema is now you know probably as good as if not better than it ever was. But there is something about the character dialogue driven, bittersweet. I say you know hilarious and heartbreaking, all those things, and it it's just lovely. It's just absolutely lovely. So, Mark, we just heard uh, interviews and reviews for Oppenheimer, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Poor Things and The Holdovers. Which of those five films was your favourite? Well, as we've already established, Poor Things, although you and I are divided on that. Yes. But it's going to be Oppenheimer. (laughs) And that's that. And that's that. Uh, So we'll look at the other films in the running for Best Picture, although it's going to be Oppenheimer. (laughs) The Zone of Interest, where Jonathan Glazer talked about the need for finding hope whilst making the film. Maestro, featuring that incredible performance from... Kerry Mulligan. Mulligan. Why did you pause then? Because you, you meant to say Bradley Cooper, but I actually Bradley thought that Carey, No, that, I'll do it again. Maestro, featuring that incredible performance from... <laughs> Bradley Cooper. Kerry Mulligan. Oh, yes. Um, a, your interview with American fiction's Jeffrey Wright, in which he explains why the film is so personal to him, and Anatomy of a Fall, which I think was one of the very best films of last year. As indeed you said at the time. Uh, and also one of the best performances by a dog... Yes. In any <laughs> Exactly. And it was at, it was up for the Fido Awards. I think it, it may have been the Palm Dog winner, but it's definitely up for the Fidos. Uh, and we'll end with a joint favourite of ours, Past Lives. Which was my favourite film of the year. Our conversation with first-time director, that's first-time director Celine Song, who spoke about the transition from directing for theatre to directing for film, and how that experience has shaped her film. So, here is Simon's interview with Zone of Interest director, Jonathan Glazer. A lot of the correspondence to us about your movie, Jonathan, has concentrated around the thermal imaging scenes. Can you just explain why they are so important to you and why they're so
7: important to the story? I was interested in meeting any survivors who were still alive. And there were a handful of people who had survived the war. They were Poles. They were non-Jews. They were... In their 90s, at this point, when I met them, and some of them were members of the AK, and the AK was the Polish resistance movement. So it was an underground movement. One person I met in particular, her name was Alexandra Bystron Czech. forgive my Polish pronunciation. And she I met her when she was ninety. She was fourteen at the time of the war. She lived two kilometers from Auschwitz. Her grandfather was an important engineer in the coal mine, and as a result of that, the Nazis allowed her and her family to stay put, so that her grandfather could continue continue to work as an engineer in the coal mine, obviously for them. And as a fourteen year old, she she well, she joined the AK as a, as a child. And um, one of the things she did that she told me about. Was she left very simply? She just left fruit. She left food wherever she could and whenever she could. And often that would happen at night when the work, when the construction sites with the slaves, the slave labor that was happening there during the day, were empty. And she would go and uh, to great danger, of course, herself. And she would leave um, as much as food as she was able to. So when I met her and she told me this story, there was something so simple and holy in that, and it was so important for me personally to hear somebody who had you know to actually feel the light in someone that there was something other uh, uh, it wasn't just this pure awful darkness and I think I was really struggling with the project at the time thinking I was desperate for light I wanted to I, I needed to include it somehow where would I find it where was it and I found it in her and so I felt that I could only continue with the project if I was also going to show that. And so what you see in the film is is Alexandra as a 14-year-old girl going about her nocturnal kind of uh, covert activities that she did and i shot it on a thermal camera because it's the thermal camera so basically what you're looking at there is heat not light and it was it came out of the sort of dogma for the filming of all of it really which is i only wanted to use natural light i didn't want to use film lights apart from one occasion um, where we used one film light everything else in the film uh, was shot with natural light or practical lights in other words if it was too dark in the house, then you know one of the characters would turn on a ceiling light or a desk lamp or something like that. I wanted to keep out all of the kind of artifice of filmmaking. So when I came to shooting a fourteen-year-old a girl in a field, at, you know, nineteen forty-three, in the middle of the night. I couldn't suddenly bring in kind of Hollywood light. And so it really simply is, well, what is the tool that I need to use in order to see her? And that led obviously led us down the road towards thermal imaging. But it was all in in harmony with the this aim of sort of this 21st century lens, of using modern technology, sharp lenses, you know, using everything, trying to make it as present tense as possible as a film, and, and looking at that period through a 21st yeah. century eye. Really,
0: One of the things apparently Jonathan Glazer set cameras in the house, he described it as big, like in the way they would do in Big Brother, so that when the people were acting in the house, they, they could do a lot of it, you know, moving around quite naturally within the house. So there's almost a kind of documentary feel sometimes to the way that the acting happens. But it's also a very, very studied, very precise, the frame is very particular, the way in which things are framed, it's, it's not, there's nothing kind of casual or handheld about it, it's all very, very formal. The, I think the best way of describing it is it's like it's it's like a study of looking away. It is a portrait of life going on in inverted commas normally, side by side with something that is absolutely unspeakable. And I was reminded of I went to Berlin, I'm going to back to Berlin quite soon the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, which is this strange thing when you walk into it and there are these low walls, it's like, a, like a maze. You walk in and, it, and it's, they, the walls are very, very low down. And then suddenly the next thing you know is that the walls are really big and you're, you've you've walked into this thing that you're completely trapped by, but you almost didn't notice it was happening. And the juxtaposition of kind of quotidian life and unspeakable horror is what's happening in the film. It's also a portrait of kind of, of seeping, growing corruption. That the, you know, a man whose whole life becomes the simple mechanics of killing. And there's a scene later on in which he talks about, you know, he, he looked at a room of people, and all he could think of was, you know, how how fast could they be could they be killed? And it's a film about complicity. And the, I think the the fact of its horrible everyday quality makes it even it makes it worse you know people talk sometimes about you know the banality of evil which is the great phrase. i don't i don't think this is the banality of evil i think it's the kind of screaming silent horror of indifference or or or, or callousness and i was reminded of when son of saul came out one of the interesting things about son of saul is because it's all shot in cl- very close on the central actor's face, the atrocities of the camp, you do see them, but they're glimpsed at the side, the, to the side of the frame. And Claude Landsman talked about how that was a, a, you know, possibly a way of, you know, the, the fact that you can approach this subject through, through fiction and, and drama. And I think maybe it's... Maybe you can only look at something this terrible from the side. You know, it's like sometimes you can't look at something straight on. Maybe looking to the side of it is actually more powerful. I do think it's really important that these stories continue to be told and it continues to be brought back into your immediate consciousness. Okay. Um, you know, it's Zone of Interest is not an easy watch. Nor nor should it be, but it, I think it is. It is right and good that this story is being constantly retold. So the movie is Zone of Interest. Do you think it's the kind of movie that will win awards, or is it just the kind of movie that is nominated for? <laughs> My suspect. Well, I think it, best sound. I think it does have a yeah. have a shot at because the soundscape is really brilliantly designed. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with rooftop experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E-T Twenty-four. Visit RooftopFilmClub.com. Hello, Kermit and Mayo listeners. We want to tell you about another show you're going to love: Dinners on Me with Jesse. Tyler Ferguson. You may know Jesse as Mitchell on Modern Family or for his Tony Award winning performance in Take Me Out on Broadway. Each week, Jesse takes a different celebrity guest out to eat at a restaurant chosen just for them. No repeats. Past guests include Sofia Vergara, Brian Cranston, Mandy Moore, Chelsea Clinton, and Ed O'Neill. More than 30 episodes are available right now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello! I might be here. You've certainly been making the rounds. So have you met the gang?
0: Betty and no. Adolph, they're just a rock. Hello.
1: Hello, Ellen, of I course, course you've run into her at another studio, no doubt. Hello, Felicia. Who did I miss? Have
0: I missed anyone? Just the piano player. <laughs>
1: well, I figured you needed no introduction. <laughs> Hello, I'm Lenny.
2: Hello, Felicia.
1: Uh, Bernstein, like that one. Montalegre. Mont- Montalegre?
2: Montalegre-Cohen.
1: Cohen?
0: Montalegre-Cohen. Well, that's an interesting marriage of words. He's about to play the piano. He's about to play the piano. Can't so stop that's it a, there. Yeah, the subject because they can't, they don't have the rights to the songs. <laughs> no, that's not true. Biographical drama about Leonard Bernstein, played there, as you heard, by Bradley Cooper, who also directs and co-writes. Um, portrays Bernstein as a brash whirlwind of contradictions, always on, always on stage, always performing. This weirdly enough relates again to the to what Jason was talking about with, with Carrie Grant, being Archie Leach playing Cary Grant. Devoted to Felicia, but also chasing after men. Big public conductor, but also private composer. Huge success story who thinks that his success is failure. Um, There's a kind of interview format, which again is not totally dissimilar to the wraparound that you have in Archie. So it's almost like there's a kind of a bipolar swinging between elation and despair. And just as he is like a collage of these things, so the film itself is... Is a collage, very theatrical. I mean, it's it's as theatrical as Rocket Man. It's as showy as the greatest showman. There are there's a scene in which Wilson gets the call that he is is to conduct because somebody else has dropped out and this is a famous part in his career when it's this kind of thing that launched him onto the big stage so we see him in bed he gets the call he comes out of bed he walks down the corridor boom he's in the theatre which is like do you remember the Piaf biopic La Vie en Rose Mm -hmm. which did a sort of similar thing so reality and fantasy colliding time is shuffled around the film dances around its narrative and um, it's it's well done it's kind of exhausting and the film is is very full on most of the time and i suppose that the, the theory of that is that, that the character is very full on most of the time and his company is kind of exhausting and it's that it's very much a kind of barrage of stuff in the what you then have as the kind of the counterpoint to that is Kerry Mulligan who is Felicia who provides ballast not just for him but for us for the film I mean there's there's one conversation that she has with him which she tells him that he sucks all of the air out of the room and she says if you're not careful you're going to die a lonely old queen and there is, so it's a sort of the the, the sense of there's him doing the, all the stuff and then there's her being the, this is, you know, this is where. So originally the project was earmarked for Scorsese um, who went on to do The Irishman instead. He's now a producer as is Steven Spielberg who had also considered directing but apparently Spielberg after having seen Star is Born said that Cooper who was there to, to star yeah. should direct it. it. I mean, it is, the, the directing is, it, it's adventurous. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's very full-on, it's very theatrical. I have to say, I found it quite hard to get into because it was so, so, you know, everything turned up to 11. There's also, you raised before, there's the the, the question about um, the prosthetics and how one feels about that. And there was one uh, critic who said, you know, Bradley Cooper played the Elephant Man on stage without using prosthetics. And why are you using prosthetics now? And obviously, the, the famous stage production of the Elephant Man, which David Bowie was in at, at one point uh, on, on Broadway. Um, I personally, it, it's, it, I don't have an answer so, as, you know, as to whether or not uh, the casting you know, is legitimate or not. It was interesting to hear what Jason said about it, which I think the thing that he said about, you know, I want to play as many characters as I can. And he was referencing David Baddiel's book and saying there were some interesting points made in it, but he just, you know, he he wants to be able to walk the full count of whatever, whatever roles he can play. I think if there is a problem, it's, it's nothing to do with that. I think if there is a problem, it is that the, full, the film is very much like a whirlwind. I mean, obviously, at the end, you see some stuff of Bernstein conducting, and you realize that the, the very theatrical performance that Bradley Cooper has been doing is uncannily close to what Bernstein actually did in real life. I mean, they're literally they're doing things about you know, you think this was OTT? Well, this is the actual thing, and it looked like that. And there, he does look uncannily like... Leonard Bernstein, although whether or not that's what you need from a biopic is, is, you know, is a matter of debate. I didn't love it. I thought it was impressive. I thought it was, were, and Kerry Mulligan is fantastic. She is really, really fantastic. And for me, she was kind of the heart of it. But, um, but like its subject, I found it quite tiring. And the music is brilliant, of course, but then it's Leonard Bernstein. So... <laughs> Jeffrey Wright, you said it's the most personal film that you've ever made, just talking about the the overlap of this family uh, into the way everyone is going to relate to this film. But could you explain just a bit more about what you meant about why this was such a personal film for you?
6: My character finds himself at that point in his life where the youthful delusions that suggest that life gets easier as you get older are completely done away with. I found myself at that point when this script arrived. My mom had passed away a little over a year prior. I had the great good fortune of being raised by my mother and her eldest sister, who's now 94 years old. And she came to live with me and my kids in New York. Uh, The pandemic set in. As all of us, you know, experienced, there were enormous pressures by that, but also as well by the passing of my mom and the void that she left and now the responsibility to be caretaker to my aunt, whom I love dearly. It was just a lot of pressures uh, all of a sudden being exerted. And so I understood the ways in which that asks sacrifices of a person. I felt a kinship with the challenges, uh, with this character and the, cha- you know, relative to the challenges that he faced. And I also understood the pressures from the other side of the film, if you will, the the, the misperceptions, the, the, the preconceptions, the attempts to limit his creative freedom. I don't complain. Uh, I think I've done pretty well in kind of circumnavigating those in my career. Uh, you know, I've, I've done work that I love, uh, proud of, but I, but I understand the nature and the sources of those pressures. So um, yeah, there was a lot that I felt in alignment with. But what's wonderful about the film, again, going back to the family side, yes, there's a universality to that, but also there's a universality to this idea of being misperceived. I think all of us in our own ways, at times have not felt seen for our authentic selves. That doesn't simply relate to being a black man in America, that relates to being a human uh, in any uh, space at times. And so again, there's a universality to that uh, side of the film and and audience members who I've spoken with have responded to that, even if they uh, don't happen to be black and
0: male, as I am. I do have reservations, and here are my reservations. I think all that stuff about the publishing, about, you know, that book being a success, or I'm going to write this book, I'm going to create this character, it's going to become a huge success. I think all that's good. I am far less interested when the film decides to broaden that palette and to become a more expansive and slightly a tender family drama. There's a romance. There's the relationship with his mother. There's all this sibling stuff going in. And now, look, the fact that the film has got a Best Picture nomination means that for some people, that broadening worked. Because generally, to get a Best Picture nomination, you know, you have to please... A, you know, a, a wide audience. So it's almost like, okay, we've broadened it out. We got a best picture nomination. So Kermode, you can shut up because we it's done what we what we thought it was going to do. The problem with for me is that I think that all that stuff takes the edge off the stuff that I like. So the stuff about the publishing, the stuff, the, the, the satirical stuff is good, but. It loses its bite and it actually, if anything, even becomes a little bit trite when it gets into the other areas of just being a more kind of broadly humanist, observational comedy. And I think what happened with me was I went in with very high expectations because I know a couple of people had seen it, really, really liked it, and I liked the score very much because I've been playing that on Scala. And I thought it started really well. I thought the cast were great. I thought all that stuff was good. And then I think it loses its way. And it's, it's kind of ironic that, it, that in a story about how in order to in order to become a success, you have to sell out. It's not that this sells out, but I think it sells itself short by sort of moving off into these other areas, which, as I say, hands up. The film's got a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. It's clearly working for some people. Work but for me- me. Well, it worked for me. And I think one of the reasons is he's such a buttoned-down character Yes, um, that it, it explains a little bit about his family, but it also crucially gives you a reason why financially he needs to make this compromise. Yes, I, but I think that, that that is a plot point rather than a... Ru- is there no point of view that thinks that the film would have been improved by being more about the publishing and less about the family? No, no, well, okay, well, no, 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 no not necessarily. I mean, if it had been all about the publishing, I might have thought, I'd like to know... I, I don't know, I just think he's such an intriguing character. Well, I think I'm- he's I think he's great and I think the performance incidentally is terrific. And when we did the I did the thing for the observer a few weeks ago about you know who should be nominated. Yes, absolutely Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K Brown absolutely should both be nominated because they what they do is terrific. It's it's more to do with I think a it's a format of the film that the film to me felt like it started really sharp and then became slightly fuzzy.
2: you you come here okay with your maybe your opinion and you tell me who samuel was and what we were going through but what you say is just uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation you know i mean sometimes sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos and everybody is lost no and sometimes we fight together and sometimes we fight alone and sometimes we, we fight against each other, that happens. And I think it's possible that Samuel needed to see things the way you described them, but if, if I'd been seeing a therapist, he could stand here too and say very ugly things about Samuel, but would those things be true?
0: So that's Sandra Huller, who is German, who during the course of the film three, speaks three languages, her own, French, because of where she lives and uh and, and her husband and english as you heard in that clip and she switches between the languages and the the switching between the languages becomes part of the story partly because sometimes she's trying to explain herself in one language then moves to another language because it's it's impossible to use that particular language to do it and secondly because it's to do with she's displaced she's living in a country in which she is having to use different languages and also because it kind of creates layers, cover, I think the word that the director used was it it creates sort of, you know, masks that so you can't quite see who she is. So Tret and her writing partner, Arthur Harari, originally called this when they first announced it a Hitchcockian procedural thriller. Director also said she wanted to use the courtroom to explore the minutiae of a character and their relationships, and that she was partly inspired very partly, by the Amanda Knox case, by the way in which we bring assumptions to what somebody should look like, and we make assumptions about their guilt or innocence Mm -hmm. on the basis of how they present. There's also, and this has been repeated quite a lot, famously on the set, she refused to tell Sandra Huller whether the character was guilty or innocent. She said, I'm not having that discussion with you. This Mm -hmm. is the script. This is how it works. I think the film is brilliant. I thought that the ambiguity is sustained to the point that it really makes you question your own presumptions there's something about uh, sandra huller's performance quite apart from that she's a magnificent actress that she's on the one hand completely readable i mean you saw just from that clip she looks like she is really struggling mm-hmm. to construct that sentence right before you uh, you and i were talking about the way in which obama you can hear the thinking the thought that goes into the the grammar of a sentence but also something which is kind of removed, something which seems to be almost detached, like almost emotionally disengaged. And, you know, it makes you, do we vilify successful women? Do we? um, The husband was a writer, but he didn't have her success. Um, There are subplots. There's a tape of an argument which she had with her husband, which her husband recorded. And he recorded it as inspiration for what he was writing. I was reminded of a story about Abel Ferrara, the director, recording an argument that he constructed. With his wife, because he was trying to, he was trying to write a script about an argument. The, you know, the, the theft of ideas or the alleged theft of ideas—a confusion over what the young child did hear, what he didn't hear, what he believes, what he doesn't believe. And the more you get into the detail, the more you realise that what's actually happening is you are making a judgment based on, based on what you just think emotionally. And to me, that's kind of what the core of it is. I think to other people, it will be about many different things. It's edge of your seat stuff. I mean, it's the Hitchcockian comparison is good. But I think it's more than that. I think it's completely engrossing. You, you, can, you can feel your brain firing on all cylinders all the way through as you're sort of scouring the the screen for clues and for, you know, I thought it was just terrific. It, I, it, it, it's quite a long film, and I never felt for one minute that it was anything other than exactly the length it's meant to be. It sounds almost old fashioned in the way you, you know, yeah, yeah. in well, a good way in yes. its construction. Well, making that Hitchcock in comparison, obviously, you know, b- b- people compare things to Hitchcock quite casually, as we know, but uh, it. It it is, on the one hand, an old-fashioned courtroom drama, and on the other hand, it is a fantastically modern drama about the way in which we judge people, the way in which we bring our presumptions to the table. Believe me, one of the films of the year. Loved it. And that is a clip from Past Lives. Its writer and director is Celine Song. I'm delighted to say that Celine is in our studio. Hello, Celine. Hi. We were just discussing, which we were not but, but but the but the final three minutes of the film and you that's that's the bit. We were both thinking, is is that is she is that what anyway, it was and it was perfect.
4: I think that the but the uh the film is meant to be a knife and it has to finish the gesture. Yeah. So I feel like the ending is the thing that you're driving to. So yeah. there are some a lot of things that, even after I shot everything, I was in the editing room, there are things that I was letting go of just so that the, the sharpness of the ending would work. So I think to me, it's like, if, if you, I mean, when we were shooting the final three minutes, I think that so much of that was very much like, you know, me running around set being like, it's like, if you, if we mess this up, the
0: whole movie is gone. We have this right.
4: You know, um, just mainly to myself.
0: Is that, is that what you were doing?
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I feel like um, what I learned in the first film and this to me, uh, making the first movie, I, and I'm sure this is true for most directors, but it really was a, like a self-discovery or a revelation for myself. Uh, it's such a deep and personal thing. In what like, way? Uh, I think it was a discovery that I am a filmmaker, and that I just—it feels like I. Because like you, you have been to, a playwright. Yeah, I've been yeah. a playwright for ten years. So I think that um, I remember second week into shooting. I remember really going home and feeling like I think that I love met the love of my life. You know, <laughs> and then you're like, I, I just know what I'm going to be doing when I'm ninety.
0: But so if, you know. okay, if we do this thing again, but this isn't a question. This is a statement. It is astonishing to see the level of confidence in a first film. I mean, I really amazed that somebody making their first feature does it manages to be as boldly in touch with the with the medium as you are. And it's lovely to hear you say, I discovered that I was a filmmaker, because we're all sitting there going, yeah, you are <laughs> evidently a filmmaker. Does the coming from the playwright background affected? I mean, the fact that you're, you know, you're obviously a writer first, is that, has, that, has that affected the way that you're a filmmaker?
4: I, I think without question. And you don't have as many equipment or as many uh, tools at your disposal, but you're just dealing with uh, character, story, uh, dialogue blocking, it's just the most fundamental parts of dramatic storytelling. And then I think that those skill sets and those experiences just came with me. The real challenge in that situation really, to me was, you know, theatre is a figurative medium. So time and space moves in a figurative way. And in film, it moves literally. So the thing that I usually talk about when it comes to like what that means to me is, if you want to set a story on Mars, in theater, all you need is a room of any size with an audience. And the actor just has to say, we're on Mars. you know. And maybe you want to do a little light change and it's a little red or something. And then you're like, hey, on Mars today. And that's all you need to do to take the audience to Mars. Uh, in film, if you want to set a story on Mars, you have to build Mars mm-hmm. or you have to go to Mars, right? So I think to me, that really was the, um, the hardest transition. So I, But I think that one of the things that I, I learned, and this is again, this, this is the part where it's a little bit discovery, that like I have so much more faith in the audience's patience in, in silence, for example, right? Or like their openness to listen to a conversation, and I think that that faith really does come from my work in theater, because I've been in a hushed room where people are just quietly waiting for the next word to come.
0: I was having this conversation weirdly last night. I did an, an on-stage thing with Brian Cox, and there was a discussion afterwards about how silence in theater is earned. You earn the, you know the space between things. And I think the same is true of film, that you earn the right to have those kind of the moments in which the you're not having to talk to the audience. And I've always said the thing about show don't tell. I think there's so much show don't tell going on in this film. There is one scene we won't spoil, but there's one scene in which two people don't say anything at all. And the scene seems to go on for an unfeasibly long period of time. But actually, as I think you would have picked up from the conversations about the space. There's a lot of space in this movie, the space yeah. between the characters. And it's it was a COVID film, but that's not the reason. But they are standing a long way apart from each yeah. other. And when the Korean friend and Greta meet for the first time, they are standing a long way away from each other for a long time. Yeah. And that sort of is almost like a, a physical manifestation of what you're talking about in terms of the silences that we have. Yeah, And I think that that, I mean, it was lovely... Again, I mean, sorry, in a way, so all of the stuff I'm saying is stuff that we've already been told by the director. But when I said I love the score, and I love the score, in the same way that I love Eko okay, Ishibashi's uh, score for Drive My Car, the phrase that she uses is that the audience have to want the music to come in for half a second before it comes in. And that sense of, the, it's the longing that you need. It's the yearning. it's the It's the audience wanting something. Didn't you feel that you spent an awful lot of the movie wanting things to... You know, to be manifested. Well, I knew that you would be talking about uh, talking about the music, but I did. It was interesting that she didn't want to use the music to take you to a place. She wanted the acting and the story yeah. to take you there. Yeah. So that the the film was kind of. The, uh, the, the school was kind of filling in behind the story rather yes. than actually leading the story. And that reminds me of something that, you know, Bill Forsyth has said. Um, I said I was just back from Shetland, and Bill Forsyth said this thing once that every time I told him that I love the school for Local Hero, a little part of him was heartbroken because he had this feeling that that you use music when the film isn't doing the job that you put the music on but actually what what was being described there is the perfect use of cinema music is that it's not dragging you to a place but when you're at the place it's amplifying what's happening but it's amplifying it in such an understated way seriously This is this is a major filmmaking talent who seems to have arrived fully formed after an apprenticeship in theatre, and you know you are going to be hearing a lot more about Celine Song in future. So, Mark, we've now heard from the actors and directors involved in most of the Best Picture nominees, and we've heard your thoughts on each of them. Which film do you think will be taking home the prize on Sunday? Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. And which film, <laughs> which film would be your winner, Past Lives? Yeah. But but would you put that over... Poor Things. Um, yeah, would you put Poor Things over Past Lives? No, I, th- I mean, Past Lives... It's have... entirely down to you. Okay. You have... Oh, if, if it was entirely down to me, I would go for Past Lives because I absolutely loved everything about that film. I think of the ones that have got a chance of winning, I would go for Poor Things because I think it's, I think the design, I think everything about that film is is, is really terrific. Anatomy of a Fall, I think both you and I loved, but mm-hmm. we understand that it's it's not going to win Best Picture because Oppenheimer is going to win Best Picture. Um, but I, my own personal best film of the year was Past Lives. And I'm, how lovely to see it in the... I mean, you know, Celine Song said what she learned making that film was that she is a filmmaker. And the fact that Past Lives is in this conversation is, I think, victory enough. We hope you enjoyed this Oscars Best Picture special. Let us know... Oppenheimer. Exactly. Let us know which film you think will be carrying home the statuette come Sunday. But if you're saying anything other than Oppenheimer, you're <laughs> going to be wrong. And we'll be in your ears once again on Monday the 11th with yet another... Oscar special Vanguardistas will be giving our immediate reactions on the morning after the night before Make and discussing sure you... Oppenheimer's win That's across right. the board for and best Killian. director best film and best actor and how our friend Killian looked amazing <laughs> and uh, did his pretty uh, good speech